0: like Great Recession to Honeywell. And when he came, Honeywell was a mess. You know, this was a company that had been patched together with Allied Signal and Honeywell and a third company who no one's ever heard of called PIP, and none of them liked the others. And so it's one of the reasons why m and is such a torturous kind of a path to greatness because actually pasting that together is not so easy as he found. And so when he comes, he does a whole series of things. One of the reasons why we wrote a case about him as well as writing him in the book uh, is that it's the best turn
1: Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Sandra Sucher. Sandra, thanks for doing this.
0: Thanks. Thanks so much.
1: So you've got kind of a fancy background, author, Harvard professor, business executive. How do you introduce yourself when you meet people?
0: Uh, So I, let me think, I start with the fact that I grew up in Detroit, Michigan. I went to schools, my schools were always half black and half Jewish. So I didn't know people who look like you with blonde hair until I got to the University of Michigan, where it was like a shock because in our graduating class, in my high school, we had four natural blondes out of a graduating class of 717.
1: Oh, wow.
0: Right. So it was not everyone's picture of what it's like to grow up in America. You know, I was the first woman in my family uh, to work in business and just always had ambition and wanted to do things. And at this point, I still think of myself as a working executive. The 20 years that I spent in business were hugely enjoyable and formative. And so when I came to Harvard Business School, it was more to... Uh, kind of take time that we don't have in business to really figure out, okay, I'm going to step back, do a little bit of thinking, which you don't have time to do, or it's hard to make time to do, and to start to kind of build some lateral uh, thinking for myself because I'd spent 10 years in fashion retailing, fancy, attractive scarf. And I spent 12 years at Fidelity Investments. I was chief quality officer there. And so I'm a lifer. Once I in some organization, I'd like to spend a lot of time there because I feel like I give better value. And so those experiences are, they build the foundation of what I study and why. Uh, And so that was kind of how I backed into trust as an idea out of some of my own personal experiences and things that I've been reading about and working on.
1: And, And the new book, The Power of Trust, when does that come out?
0: Uh, so that comes out July 6th and it's being published. Uh, you can buy it, buy it now, right? I'm going to show you what the book looks like. Look at me being all promoted. <laughs> uh, the power of Trust. We have this really attractive cover and uh, so you can get it through Amazon and it's a great book. You, you know, you will want to read it. I, I hope to do some justice to it in this conversation so you'll end up concluding that this might be something that you want to pick up.
1: Well, I saw one of the endorsements on there. We had David Cody on the show and he was great. So I was, I was it's fun to see his endorsement on there.
0: Yeah. Dave Cote is I of all the people, businessmen I work with, he's the one I would work for in a second. Really? Why? Because he is smart and rational and he follows the data. So this is a guy we you know, we write about him in our book. We wrote a case about him because of his use of furloughs during the Great Recession. So he had spent you know, his most of his career at GE before he got to Honeywell. He actually had a small stint before that. And when the Great Recession rolled around, he had seen the effects of layoffs at GE. And he said there has got to be a way to manage a downturn without doing so much damage to the people and to the company. Now, very few people have that kind of ability to follow the facts, Uh, And to say, I know that that's true. So let me see what else we can do. So I admire someone who can do that kind of a, I'm just going to think differently. I'm not doing it to show off. It just doesn't make sense to me that I would do that. So he's a very, very rational guy. He's also, uh, he's a funny guy. He believes hugely in fairness. So when he came to Harvard Business School, which people do when you write a case about them? And you come to see the case being taught, and he was in the classroom. One of the students asked him, they said, well, you know, do you have like an ethical principle that you believe in? And, you know, because students never really believe that leaders actually think about these things. It's kind of like, because they're still fairly young in their career, even though they're in their late 20s. And he said, fairness. He, He said, if there's one thing that I check myself on when I'm making a decision the the test that I use is am i being fair and and he said that and so and that's a theme that we have one of our major parts of our framework has to do with people trust you when you are and so he really understood that right away so he's a great guy and he's tough as nails I had to rewrite the case because he didn't like it, how it came out the first time I, and it was like okay you're the boss for this case about you we'll, we'll work this and I and it, but it wasn't his picture about how a situation unfolded. And he wanted it to be right. Right. And so we had to go in and say, okay, this makes sense to do. So he's a great guy. Right.
1: Well, and I don't, I'm not sure that everybody really understands how rigorous those case studies are. I was lucky enough to come and take the, uh, the private equity venture capital course there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, got to live in the dorms for a week. And <laughs> I will say it was a little intense cramming a whole semester of one, that one class into one week. We were, It was like 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. every day. Yeah. But but I loved it. I called my wife and asked, do I really have to come home, you know? But it was interesting because at the one dinner, we did get to spend a little time with some case writers and, and just understand, like, really what goes into that. And, and no wonder they're so effective because they're so thoughtful.
0: Right. So it, so there's always, you know, a good case has got, the most important thing is a dilemma that reasonable people can disagree. With. And so if you don't have a dilemma, it's not a good case, because you have to have a class where people can say, well, I think this, and there'll be plausible reasons in the case for them to think that. And I think that, and there have to be plausible reasons. So you're always kind of building up from what's the dilemma. And, and so there's an art form to it. And a lot of it is building data into the case that supports multiple so, yeah, we work at it really hard because we know what happens when it's a good case in a class. And we know what happens when it's not so great.
1: Well, and and I think that I had maybe expected it to be more like, you know, some of the less rigorous business books where they they make a case for something and they give you some anecdotal evidence and say that's that's proof. This is the only way. Right. And and so I just wasn't expecting I just wasn't expecting that level of deliberation. I wasn't expecting like, I was expecting to come and be instructed, and it was so much more interactive than I had expected, I guess is a better way to say it.
0: Yeah, so so we call it training and judgment. So we don't actually think of ourselves as teaching a, a, a topic per se, although we do teach topics. But the end of it is, are you a better decision maker? And that's why our cases are always written from the standpoint of you or Ms. X, CEO of Y, what would you do? Right, And so it's a process of testing your logic. Why did you decide that? Where did you find data for, to support your opinion in the, in the case? And then to rub up against people in the class who disagree and say, no, 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 that's not the right approach. I would do this other thing. And so and we, you know, 100 years ago, people figured out at Harvard Business School, people learn better. When they actually have to think as part of the process and really put a stake in the ground and argue from a point of view. And it just makes for deeper learning. Uh, so that's why we do it. So, but I, but I love hearing what you're saying because it's. It...
1: <laughs> no, uh, well, I, I found it really helpful. You know, I, I want to switch gears for a minute. I am kind of fascinated with fidelity. We recently had Ram Sharan on the show, yeah? and he was talking about some of the ways that fidelity these days has really embraced. You know becoming more of a digital company than maybe some of their competitors faster and and just for me being in the investment business like the idea of not having to go public and this idea of of how they've been able to, you know become a multi-trillion dollar firm without having to do it the way everybody else does or you know i'm, I'm interested in what being a chief quality officer looks like at fidelity
0: yeah. So so your job as a chief quality officer in, in any of the divisions, and I've had it both at the corporate level and then in the retail division, the individual investor division, and your job is to take a look at the customer experience of the firm and work back from that. So, if we want this to be the experience of opening a new account, of engaging with someone on the phone, of getting a trade cleared, and so you say, and how are we doing that right now? And what you learn is that... Anything that you do is like a chain of little steps across multiple departments. And so the art of it is getting all those people together to first agree on, is this what we're doing right now? You know, and and lots of times it's like, well, I'm not doing that. Well, sure you are. And so first you just have to kind of cement what's going on. And then there's very creative work on, you know, what is it that we could do better? And if we wanted to do that, what steps would we need to put in place that we don't have right now that would lead us there? So Ned Johnson was a huge supporter of quality, a believer in Kaizen, Japanese version of quality, kind of from the get-go. And he 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 was the sponsor of the quality process at Fidel and he was the person who kept saying, that's what really matters, is that people can count on us to do business this way. So it was very engaging work. And I always felt like um, when I was doing it, there was this slogan that we had. At the time, if you do what's right for the customer, you're doing what's right for Fidelity. And there aren't a lot of financial services firms that necessarily would walk that path because it's a pretty high bar. You know, multi million dollar trade that goes south, you know, and it's your fault, right? So now what do you do? You know, it's one thing to say it's only a couple thousand, but if it's multi million, do you give it all back? Right. And so you really, really, really have to go after it. So, But the short form is being a quality officer, is working from the customer back and then figuring out what's the process you need to put in place to serve them. And that process is always across the organization as a whole. How would you
1: say it's similar or different than a chief experience officer that some people have now?
0: Right. So I think that it's not that different. And meaning that, you know, in the dawn of time, when the quality movement was getting started, there wasn't this division between, well, that's the customer experience, and this is what we do in the company to build that customer experience. And so that is a domain that's been built out over the last couple of decades. At the time that I was starting, which was in the, actually in 1976, but it was after that, by the time I was at Fidelity, 1986, there really wasn't that uh, role. So you had your marketing department. Right? And so they would sort of stand for the customer and also for product and say, and then you'd have the people who run the phone and the branches. But there wasn't anybody in the now uh, genre of, of sort of saying, okay, these people are responsible for the customer experience. So I'd say it's similar. What I don't know is how involved customer experience officers get in a process view of the firm. I don't know how you mm-hmm. do the work without having that. And I don't know how big a bat they swing when they go to try to fix something.
1: Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm I'm fascinated with retail. You know, I come, you know, for my friends who are like investment bankers in Manhattan or whatever, the, the bigger the institutional client, the cooler you are, right? But there's a lot of competition. Where there's very low competition is retail, because you're it's not as cool when you go to when you go out with your like your high exactly. banking buddies or whatever, right? So to me, I'm fascinated there because like you look, I think Brookfield said. They expect by 2025 for there to be 80 trillion in institutional capital out there.
0: Yeah.
1: And and at the same time, they're expecting it to be like over 120 trillion in retail capital. It's actually a bigger fish. Oh. Now, with the internet, it, it was so inefficient to gather it before. Right. You know, you had to have all the branches and look at the huge network fidelity. But with the internet, like it's now becoming possible, you know, equity crowdfunding and some of these laws and stuff. Yeah. So I'm interested in in. A principle of of retail a financial services success that maybe isn't obvious to everyone from your from your time? Or what do you think is one of the most important?
0: So this is this may be too domain specific for what you're asking about. I would say that if I were still in that business, the biggest trend that I see is the trend around sustainable investing. So I think that people are really quite interested, and increasingly so. Right now, one out of every four dollars goes into what's called sustainable investing. You know, which is investing in ESG, and a lot of the research that was done early on that said you're going to reduce your returns, turns out that's not true. At least you stay even. And then it's a question of okay, if I can stay even and you know feel like I'm doing something good for the environment, and the social policies are good, and the governance issues are good, that's a better investment. End stop.
1: Well, again, my my heroes who took all the Warren Buffett principles and applied it to real asset investing. I mean, look at look at how well Brookfield has done in renewable energy. You know, I've just it's not like a it's not a charity masquerading as investment. Like it's real returns. You know, I think the firm overall has had like a twenty three percent compound annual growth rate or something. It's incredible, right? Right. So
0: yeah, uh, yeah. Fascinating. I wrote a case about Generation Investment Management which is a sustainable investing firm that's headquartered out of London. It actually was started by Al Gore and a guy named David Blood. So, yes, it was bl- Blood and Gore. Pretty awful, but, but they were you know, among the first, not Calvert, not, not the very first, to kind of till that soil. But one of the principles that they had is that they wanted their investment professionals to be schooled both in the sustainability issues and in the industry issues. You know, so, if you're responsible for heavy industry, you're going you're gonna to be responsible for putting forth companies to invest in, and you're supposed to cover both ends of the spectrum in terms of what it is that you think, both from a sustainability standpoint and from a sheer investment, here's what I think. And, but they, so, they cover many more companies, and then what they do is they wait for a time, and they have a separate small investment committee that says, okay, now's the time to go into that investment. But most of their money goes to allocating people into companies that they watch because they think that they're good companies. And then it's sort of a question of when's a good time to buy, when's a good time to sell, right? And, and so I was quite struck by that, that that changed the nature of what it meant to be an investment professional and what is it you are supposed to learn because most organizations will split that out. They'll say, you're responsible for the business end, you're responsible for sustainability. We kind of put that together. i liked, you know, the higher bar of putting it into one person, because I think that that actually creates a different kind of investment professional and something that's more rewarding, I would think. I don't know.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's uh, shift gears again. Tell us, well, give us a, give us the elevator pitch on the book, and then I want to hear one of your favorite stories from it.
0: Okay. So the elevator pitch is that trust is important, but it's not the thing that we think it is. So trust is this fuzzy concept where it's kind of feeling between you and me and, you know, I trust you and all that sort of stuff. It turns out that that way of understanding trust is not particularly useful, both because it's not accurate and because you can't do anything about it if you're a business So my interest in this research has been all along to say, okay, how can we understand trust as a process and an outcome that you can measure and work on in the same way that you do anything else in business? And through our research inductive, lots of it bottoms up case research, uh, what we found is that people trust based on four dimensions. Uh, Dimension one is competence. So no one is gonna trust you if you're not good as a business at what you say you're gonna do. You say these things about your product, you damn well better be sure they do those things. But if that were the name of the game for trust, we wouldn't have second thoughts about using Uber, right? So trust is more than that. Trust is more than just saying, I think that you can do the job, I'm trusting, counting on you to do. Uh, You also start to worry about things like the motivation of the company. And here, what we've seen, because you can't get inside someone's head, but you can see whose interests companies actually support through their actions. So Uber is a particularly great example, at least in the former times, because of how lousy they were at taking into account the interests of a woman who got raped in Delhi. And they steal her medical records instead of apologizing to her because they want to try to get the case thrown. They actually had some very unfair means Uh, They, they, they started a process of asking their drivers to book and cancel calls on Lyft. And they said, let's do they did that for a year, and they booked and canceled 5000 calls, rides, uh, because they wanted to mess up their operations. Right. And and so there's a reason why people and, you know, so the second dimension first is competence. Then there's motives. Then there's means. You know, are you fair in how you go about doing business? And then the fourth is impact. And this, I think, is very not studied enough, which is when we trust, we just don't trust you to do the things you tell me you intend to do. We judge you based on all of the impacts that you have, whether you intend them or not. Uh, And so it's really that, to me, that's that's sort of the punchline for trust, which is what impact do you have as a company? If it's an unintended negative impact, do you take responsibility for it? Do you try to mitigate the harm? And do you try to prevent it from occurring in the future? So that's what it's like to try to become trusted as a company. It's real actions that real people can do, uh, and it's built through relationship with stakeholders right? So this is a multi-stakeholder business. There's a reason why we've sort of ended landing on stakeholder capitalism. But the bet of stakeholder capitalism is that I can simultaneously satisfy the conflicting interests. I can make my investors happy. I can satisfy my customers and my employees and the public. And trust is all about building these relationships, understanding at a detailed level what it is these different groups expect of you, and trying to come out in some way that you can make as good as you can on the expectations that people have. So, so that's that's the lay of the land. It's this framework of competence, motives, means, and impact that we've been doing work with a, a couple of companies. And one of the ways that people find that helpful is as a sorting, a sorting device to say, if I'm trying to figure out what to pay attention to, I should start to look at, well, if I put things through this lens, of competence, motives, means, and impact. Where are we vulnerable? You know, where are we not doing as good a job as we could do? Or where is there a big opportunity that if we could get people to trust us to do this thing, we could actually really make some business happen? Well,
1: Well, you know, it makes me think too about like, you know, especially for things like, well, it's just you know, perception is reality for so many folks, right? Like our consulting firm is a lot of CEO coaching and working with senior executives. And it's like, you know, sometimes we have to remind them, like, it doesn't matter if you set a good example if nobody finds out, right? like it's the right thing to do, but it will not have an effect on the organization if nobody sees the good example. And so there's this line between like humility, like obviously there's the people who do it only for show, And then there's the more humble people who don't realize, like you have to get found out for this to become contagious. Uh, And so that can be an interesting, you know, balance beam in the middle of like doing it for the sincere reasons, but also trying to, to change the perception and and set the tone of this is how things are done here. Do you have any ideas for navigating that, that balance beam, not falling off either side?
0: So I, I think that for, for CEOs, There's a competence that has to do with how you build a public persona, right? You know, that's a capability that you need to have your leader on any business of any scale, on any business, quite honestly. And I think the way that you go about that is you try to become more comfortable than some people might be in trying to get the word out about what you believe in, what you're trying to do, how it is that you're going about accomplishing certain kinds of things, the tough calls you've had to make. I mean, those are all things that people, if a CEO is kind of open about that stuff, all of a sudden they have a view, well, here's who this woman is, or here's who this guy is. And so, and that's not embarrassing. That's doing your job as a leader, because leaders have a public role, you know? And so, you know, so I I think that the people who shy away from that, oh, no, I don't think that that makes sense to do, or it makes me embarrassed. Too bad. You know, if you don't want to do that, you shouldn't be a leader, because leadership is a public act.
1: Mm, That's a different way to frame it, yeah. That's a good point. Well, tell us one of your favorite stories in the book.
0: So, so, so let me think, I'll go back to, let me think, wait, I want to be thoughtful here about which story I tell. So I'm going to go back to Dave Cote and to talk a little bit more about what it was like to try to do this. So imagine yourself, uh, so he came four years, six years before the uh, Great Recession to Honeywell. And when he came, Honeywell was a mess. You know, this was a company that had been patched together with Allied Signal and Honeywell and a third company who no one's ever heard of called PIP, and none of them liked the others. And and so it's one of the reasons why M&A is such a torturous kind of a path to greatness, because actually pasting that together is not so easy as he found. And so when he comes, he does a whole series of things. One of the reasons why we wrote a case about him, as well as writing him the book, uh, is that it's the best turnaround story I've ever seen. So he comes in and one of the first things he decides is that our accounting is terrible. He said, we are actually recognizing revenues when we shouldn't be. We're way too generous around the ways that we are expensing things uh, and trying to capitalize expenses. And he said, how can anyone believe in our numbers? How can I even know what we're doing if we're messing around with the numbers that much? Now, very few people coming into a business are going to say, okay, I've got a list of things I'm going to try to fix, and they're putting financial reporting and controls at the top of that. So it's a very impressive starting point, both for how employees understand this is a new guy in town, how investors can understand what they're up to, and how customers can start to think this is a more reliable business to do business with. He did the same thing with all the environmental liabilities that they inherited from Allied Signal. So Allied Signal had been in the chemical business. There were huge suits against uh, Honeywell at that time, the combined company. And what he did is he created a process of saying, I'm going to spend this much money every year to try to make good on those lawsuits. So he turned an uncertain liability into something with certainty. So investors loved him the people who were suing him loved him because he wasn't trying to fight them as Allied Signal had done. And he tried to build a process of how it is that he's managing this. So that's an amazing thing to take on, right? And so you know, when I say he's an ad, admirable kind of a CEO, it's because he really does allow himself to see the reality of what's going on. So he does that. yeah. And so I'll, I'll skip to, so if you lead up then to what's going on at the time of, The Great Recession, their business actually wasn't hurt initially the way that other businesses were. And so they didn't have a lot of reason to kind of go out and say we need to do layoffs and all that stuff. But the longer they watched, the more it became clear that they were going to get hurt at some point. Uh, And so two years before he had started slowing down hiring, he said he just was getting nervous that things had been good for too long. And so he told people that if you're going to hire someone, you have to show me what's the actual dollar value of this person. And if you're going to, if, if not, you have to reduce the cost somewhere in order to bring this person on board. People are screaming, they're crazy, they hate him. But he's thinking, I'm trying to protect the fact that if the downturn ever comes, we don't have as many people on board as we would have. Because one of the problems with Honeywell had been that they had uncontrolled hiring. And then huge layoffs, 20, 25 percent of people. And so they have these spikes, which are hugely damaging, we know from the research uh, and organizations. So when it comes to the Great Recession, he's saying, okay, there's got to be a better way to think about this. And so unlike literally all of the other major global multinational kind of companies, manufacturing companies who are his competitors, he says, I think I'm going to make a bet on, on furloughs. Instead of telling people, you've lost your job, I'd rather have people take a hit and still be employed, but maybe not make any money for a period of time. That's how we'll save money. And they did a whole host of things before they got to that. And then he said, and, so, and he didn't have it be the same for everybody. So in one division, it was one week of furlough, no pay. Other divisions, it was five weeks because their business took longer and was harder hit. And so he managed this process. His leadership team said, well, you know, we think we should go on furlough too. (laughs) You know, everyone's in this, we're in this together. And he said, absolutely not. You know, I need you in the office managing this business during this downturn. So if you want to help find some other ways, so the end of this part of the story is that he then decides that he's not going to take a bonus himself in 2009. So he says, it's not that I didn't feel like I was doing a good job. It's that if I'm asking all these other people to do this stuff, it just doesn't look right. It's not fair. Right. And so then his, all of his direct reports said, well, okay, Dave's not taking a bonus. We're not either.
1: Wow. I, he didn't never told me that part of the story.
0: Right. Uh, And then many of their direct reports Said, okay, I, I think this is a better way to go about it. And, you know, when he talked to us about it, he said, it, you know, it's not like we saved the company based on that. But he said, for them, it was the bonus equivalent of about six months of salary. And he said, oh. meaningful for the people who took it. And for him, it was just a question of principle that he really didn't think it was right to do that. So uh, the end of the story is that they have a remarkable recovery as he suspected. He did one other thing as long as we got business people on the phone that was super smart that he loved. And he went to all of his suppliers. And he said, at some point, this recession is going to end. And so here's the business we're going to place with you as soon as our orders pick up. And he gave advance orders to his suppliers. So this is a huge, great step in the name of trust. It's like, I trust you to know that this is where we're coming. They could rely on them to say, okay, there's going to be an upswing for us. And so then Honeywell is first in line in front of everybody else when the uh, when the recovery starts to occur so the end of this is their 3 year stock returns total stock returns between 2009 2012 were 20 points ahead of their low, their nearest competitor who was GE Right, they were able to put out all of the new products that they said they were going to do during that period of time, and he was very open about his communication. You know, because he said he wrote a chairman's letter to the investors saying, "Look, I know you guys would prefer that I just get rid of a whole lot of people in order to save some money." Now, he said, "I think it's better for you in the long run if I don't do that." And he said to the employees, "I know, as far as you're concerned." that you would just assume i forget about profit during a recession i'm not going to do that either right and so when you ask how do you balance these things this is what balancing looks like you know it's that on the ground understanding of what do people expect from me what do they want and then really trying to figure out how can you do as much as you can to satisfy the interests of each of these different groups so that's why i'm in love with the guy <laughs> right
1: Uh huh. that's okay. Well, and, and I think what's fun for me, especially on stories like this is there, there are always, there are a lot of stories of people who set great examples, but maybe don't always have the financial results. And, you know, when you hear that he took a company with $20 billion market cap, he does all these things you just described, and it comes out with 120 billion on the other end that you like to be able to do both of those you know that it, you don't need to choose between people or profits that you can have both. I mean, that's, to me, that's the Holy grail.
0: Right. Well, and I, and I think that's, I, I mean, I just think about that as being a smart business person, right? Cause there's nothing written in business. that says that you earn more money if you do bad things and there's nothing written in business. You know, we make bets all the time in business for things that we can't justify all the brand advertising that we do for corporate brands you know, no one's ever been able to justify a return on that investment. So, you know, we can afford to do other things like furlough instead of layoff and still make money at the other end.
1: I love it. Well, I know we're kind of winding down here. One of my favorite questions to ask is, what's one of the best pieces of advice you ever received?
0: This is a new piece of advice. So I'm, I'm sort of, you know, okay. being revealing. I was told uh, to wear my expertise lightly.
1: Okay. Tell me about that.
0: So I was told, so I, I, in my attempt to try to learn how to do like podcasts and other things, I I hired an acting coach. You know, my speakers bureau said that, you know, people who do this speaking advice, they don't know so much. Go to an actor because actors understand how it is that people come across and how to do that. And one of the things that I was having trouble with is that I kept sort of putting myself in the center of everything. And my coach said, you know what, that's kind of off-putting you know, actually no one's going to argue with you. You know, you're a Harvard Business School professor. You've been doing what you've been doing for, you know, decades. And so don't be so sensitive and just kind of allow the expertise to come out in, in a real way and not sort of force it on people. So, you know, when you're a senior, you know, in your career as I am, it was a really healthy sort of check. To sort of say, God, I've gotten into this defensive mode of kind of saying, I'm so great and all that stuff. And, and so it has allowed me to relax. And I've always been good at giving credit, but to even take, because I have a co-author for my book, Shalini Gupta. She's fabulous. She's a great writer. The book would not be what it is without her. And, and so that's one of the places where it was clear from the start that she was a full co-author. Even though she's a research associate, which is a certain kind of level of job at the school and, and all that. But it's like, no, her contribution was every bit as important as mine to the book. So, but the advice that I was given, it's something I, I think good advice has that kind of, oh, <laughs> you know, I never would have thought of that, but it helps you solve a problem that you can sort of had been worrying about, but didn't honestly know how to go after it.
1: Mm, that's great advice. I you know I get to do all these interviews and I'm I'm a real audiobook nerd and I, I can kind of consider myself a lifelong ner- learner and one of the downsides of that is that I can be kind of a know-it-all because you know there there because there are so many subjects that people can bring up and I I I have reference for I whatever you know and one of the things that's helped me try to rein that in more about myself which is I think probably a lifelong a lifelong process in my case. Is this idea that, from like a self-interest standpoint, that I'm not learning anything when I'm the one talking?
0: Right, right.
1: You know, and so even though for my personality type it can be, f- it can be fun to be the smart one or the one who knows or the you know the, there's the like little social payoff or something. It, for whatever reason, it helps me rein myself in a little bit. Of like, I'm not actually gaining anything, and like you said, I'm probably being a little bit off-putting oh. to be this know-it-all or you know I I unfortunately have caught myself doing like the, the one-upmanship stories. Sometimes, you know, somebody tells a story and I got the same story, but better. That is not what they were looking for from me. That is not helpful to the relationship. The only thing it does is make me feel good about myself. It is not helpful in any other way, you know? So I have to, that's like a lifelong thing I have to conquer about myself.
0: Right. And I think the other thing that I'd add is I am a huge believer as a leader in self cultivation. So I feel like learning how to be better as a leader is something you do all the time. And, you know, hence acting coach, hence advice, you know, hence going on podcasts, beats me, there's a new world for me. And if you're not trying to figure out how you can get better at what you're doing, you're not really kind of in the game in my view. And that is constant self-cultivation. What do I need to know? What do I need to work on? What am I not as good at as I'd like to be? And I think that's part of being a good leader uh, is that you keep pushing yourself forward. It's not that other people are pushing you. It's that you want to be better for other people's sake as well as your own.
1: No, yeah, I think that's a great, great, great place to end. That's great advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Congratulations on all your success. The book looks great. Congrats on getting that. Things seem to be going great for you.
0: Yeah, and I have a new COVID puppy who is tormenting me, you know, and and so yeah, things are very good. I was going to say if you're an e- so our book is coming out as an ebook. So for those of you who prefer to get your information that way, and my co-author and I, we narrated the intro because it's really, we wrote it as a conversation between the two of us. And then a professional narrator takes over after that. But it's sort of fun because, you know, we got to experience that as the first time. And it's like, oh, there's a real science to that, too.
1: That's great. Well, thanks for making time for this. Bye, everyone.